0: You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Well, good morning, church. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 38. We're going to dismiss the kids uh, now. Uh, as you, I hope, hopefully, you had a chance to look at Genesis 38. We're going to be dealing with some really explicit content this morning. So, Miss Katie and Miss Julie, uh, if you want to send your kids on uh, to be with them this morning, they're going to hear uh, about God's mission in the world. So, uh, please, if uh, I would encourage you to send them on, I will be talking about some topics uh, this morning that are explicit in content, and we'll be using words uh, that will uh, probably draw some questions from your children. And uh, as we want to help, uh, parents, uh disciple their children. We want to give you the opportunity to do that, and did not want to catch you off guard. Uh, guests, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly, and love to do so. We're going to continue in our series through the book of Genesis, which we have titled "God's Story of Creation to Restoration." Uh, We preach through books of the Bible because we believe this is God's Word. Uh, We believe that this is good for us, uh, that Genesis 38 is good for us, and we do not skip passages because we believe this is God's Word. And this morning, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab it. uh, Grab one of those black hardcover Bibles and turn to page 33 to follow along with us. It's going to be important uh, that you... You look here in the passage as we walk through it. I want, I want, to, I want to point your attention uh, to the passage and what God is telling us. What was the most shocking news that you ever heard? What's the most shocking news that you ever heard? Well, I can tell you what most shocking news I've ever told somebody. Uh, I called my dad at 435 on June 24th of 2022, and I said, Dad, don't freak out. Ashley had the baby in our kitchen. <laughs> and I said, Everything's okay. She's fine. The ambulance is here. Uh, we're going to go to the hospital. And they uh, hopped in the car and came on down uh, to Raleigh. Uh, you could hear the shock. She had the baby in the kitchen. Yes, Dad, she had the baby in the kitchen. I know, I know that that will probably be the most shocking news that I will ever uh, tell anybody. But you can think of the most shocking news that you've heard or told before Genesis 38 is shocking it's shocking and I think it's shocking on purpose Uh, there's a reason why God through Moses has Genesis 38 here for us and you may be wondering well why did we read Matthew 1 why did Andrew read beautifully those names from Matthew 1 Hold that, and we're going to come back to that at the end of our sermon this morning. Why is Genesis 38 between Genesis 37 and 39? Why is the story here between Joseph? We just learned about Joseph, we just saw him being sold into slavery. Why is the story broken up in this way? The shock is intentional. The shock's intentional. Moses wants to grab our attention. No sin, no matter how shocking, is greater than God's grace. You may have heard the hymn, grace that is greater than all my sin, God's grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, God's grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. I told you we were going to read through in the book of Genesis like a soap opera, and we come to one of the... The most challenging, convicting, strange passages in the Old Testament. But it's it's for our good. And we believe this is God's word. So when we come here to Genesis 38, here's what we see. Judah's sin sets his family on the path of wickedness and idolatry. But there's an opportunity for repentance. Now, if you're a disciple of Jesus today, if you've called on his name, If you've submitted your life to him and you're trying to walk with him, we call that walking in maturity. As a church, we want to make mature disciples. And we want to come to this passage and see how do we need to grow in our faith, our understanding of God? How do we need to live out the gospel together? And here's what we see. There's redemption for God's people from their wicked ways when they repent and trust in his promises. There is redemption for God's people. God has stepped into the messiness, into the muck of our sin. So as we start this morning, I want to remind you of a couple things. Remember, God made a perfect world. And when he did, he made Adam and Eve before sin. He told them to be fruitful and multiply. It's the first command he gave to Adam and Eve. And we now, too, have that command, be fruitful and multiply, to have children. It's a good thing. Well, when Adam and Eve sinned against God... God said, I'm going to put pain in your labor for children. But I promise there will be a seed, a son, an offspring who will come and crush the head of the serpent, the enemy, the devil, who will crush death. And we've been reading now, waiting for that offspring, for that son. And last week, we, maybe it's Joseph. We wait for him. We also see through the book of Genesis this this brokenness of barrenness. That we see women unable to have children. That sin is so broken, uh, perverted the world that that mothers, uh, it's, it's difficult to become a mother even. We see Sarah and Rebecca both struggle to have children physically. Well, as we walk through this passage... And we remember those things. This morning, our passage highlights two specific things. Two specific things. Shocking sin, but shocking grace. Shocking sin, but shocking grace. So the first highlight this morning, shocking sin. And now as we work through the story, we're going to see really this sin, this shocking sin. We're going to see four sins that are absolutely shocking and they should stun you. The depth of sin and wickedness is explored through this chapter, and I think God intends us to sit here and read these sins to consider both the temptation and implication of our sin. So look there at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near a Dulamite named Harah. There, Judah saw a daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as his wife and slept with her. So, when you read these two verses, you might wonder where's the sin? Here's the first sin rebellion. At first, you look at the decision, you're like, he separates himself from his family, and some of you may sympathize with that decision. You're just gonna get out of the house and and move on. But in his culture, he was doing more than just moving out of the house, he was moving away from the family in terms of protection. Unity and authority. Judah was divorcing himself, if I can use that word, from his family. And on top of this, Judah befriends a Canaanite who will be influential in his life. This isn't good. But it gets worse. He also marries a Canaanite girl. Do you remember what Abraham instructed his servant when he when he sent his servant to go get a son for or get a wife for his son Isaac? Well, Genesis 24, i put it up on the screen for you. I want you to see it. Abraham tells his servant, and I will have you swear by the Lord, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites whom I live. You will not take a daughter from the Canaanites. The Old Testament for God's people has a general prohibition against marrying Canaanite women. Why? This isn't about ethnicity. This isn't racism, but it's about idolatry. You see, Canaanite women would lead the sons of Israel away from God. Judah has rebelled against his family by leaving them and rebelled against Abraham by marrying a Canaanite woman. And now this rebellion will seep into his sons. Let me sum up verses 3 through 5 for you. Judah's wife, Shua, gives birth to three sons. That's important. Great men in the Old Testament have three sons, but it's going to be the opposite for Judah. And the first one was Ur, the second was Onan, and the third was Shelah. After they were born, the story speeds up for us. Right, maybe even 15, 20 years when the sons were able to marry. Now look down at verse 6. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Remember, Tamar was mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. This is the first time in the Bible God has put somebody to death in this way. We aren't told the details, but we see that he is wicked. Judah's son is judged because of his sinful rebellion. And church, family, do not skip over this verse just casually. Don't pass by with apathy or even confusion. Take heed of what happens wickedness is always judged sin always brings God's judgment the sin in our lives no matter how small or how well hidden we think they are God will judge them so church flee sin flee it fight it with all that you have in God's power And so now, church, we come to one of the most strangest encounters of all the Old Testament. It's strange for multiple reasons. The first is that we can't identify with Judah's command. It doesn't make sense. Look at verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as a brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. Now, let me help us identify with this. Remember, the family has lived in a land that... The the men, they take care of the land, they're shepherds, and they take care of their family. They would have had big extended families. They lived in a patriarchal society. Well, in God's desire for any women that would become widows, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 25 that God gives what we call this Levite vow. And I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. And I want to read to you what Moses writes down, Deuteronomy 25. Verses 5 and 6. When the brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger from the outside family. Her brother in law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother in law for her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out of Israel. Again, it's hard for us to understand, but because of the nature of what they lived in, the widows couldn't provide for themselves. So they potentially could live with their fathers, but if they died, they had no protection, no support, no money, nothing. And so God says, if that's the case, then a brother should step in and care for that widow. So the brother can continue the family line. We we get this. Some of you may have only daughters. You may not have a son. And so your family name will actually stop. But look here. The brothers continue the family line, but the the biological child will not be the legal child. And so if a brother-in-law has a child with the the widow, that son now is the heir. No longer is the second uh, brother, it's now the son, the grandson, who is now the heir heir. To the family. And Onan knows this. He knows that. Because right now, Onan is the heir of the family. But if he has a son with Tamar, it's all gone. And so, look, verse 9. Let me sum it up for you. Onan, instead of helping Tamar have a son by fulfilling his duty as a brother in law, he refuses to do that. Now, remember what I remind you of when we started that. God gave a command to be fruitful and multiply. And when sin in the world, it caused a a brokenness in biological pregnancy. But here, Tamar isn't physically incapable of bearing children. This is the opportunity is being withheld from her by Onan, by sinful people. But Judah doesn't follow through with this either. Notice what he says in verse 8. Judah tells Omar to have sex with Tamar, but not marry her. Even Judah is wrong. Judah twists and perverts the provision because he just wants a grandson. He doesn't care for Tamar like a good father-in-law. And so I want to draw your attention to two words here in verse 9. Seed, that is offspring, probably in your translation, and ground. Of course, this is very graphic, but not for the reasons you might think. It's not for the reasons you might think. Let me show you. Remember God's promise in Genesis 3.15? What does he say? There will be a seed to crush the head of the serpent. There is a battle between God's seed and the seed of the serpent. Between Cain and Abel. Between Jacob and Esau. We even saw it last week between Joseph and between his brothers. There is a spiritual battle going on between the physical children. The enemy now has used God's promise of land to Abraham, the ground. God promised Canaan as a land for his people. And Satan uses that to destroy the very seed, the very offspring that would come from it. So Anan refuses to fulfill his responsibility to his family, to his brother, and ultimately to God's promise. This is outright a rebellion to what God wants for him and for his family. Now don't miss this either. Onan uses Tamar. He dehumanizes her. He uses for for himself, for his own sake, for his own pleasure. She's just a means to an end for him. Onan is just as selfish and greedy as his father. Judah sold Joseph without even thinking, hey, why, do, why should we kill Joseph? We're not going to gain anything from that. Let's sell him and make some money. Onan is a chip off the old block, greedy and selfish. And so men, let me just be very clear with all of us in the room today. This is what the lie of pornography is, that you can go and look and get whatever you want. It's a means to an end. You can get all of it and it has no consequences. Well, that's not the truth. It wants, to, it wants to lie to you and tell you that this is all okay. Women are not a means to an end. They're brothers, brothers are sisters. We must view them as sisters. And oftentimes we begin to even try to hold back those thoughts of, of what's true and right. Husbands, let me tell you as well, do not treat your marriage bed as a means to an end be very careful you should love your wife care for her and never treat our marriage beds as something to get out of it instead of to love and enjoy and so what does god do to onan he kills him for his rebellion he kills him because he has he has rebelled against god's promise rebelled against what God said he wanted for his people. And look at verse 11. Then Judah said to his daughter Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought he might die too. He doesn't know if it's Tamar. He's got no idea. He doesn't know why his sons keep dying. And so Tamar went to live in her father's house. Judah has no, he's got no real plan to give Tamar his third son. And so we've seen the wickedness of Judah's sin. And how it set his family on a path of destruction. So we've seen rebellion. But now we're going to see two more sins. And I'm going to give them to you together. Immorality and idolatry. Immorality and idolatry. Our, our story speeds up now. Verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shulah, died. Remember, Tamar still without a, uh, a child or a husband. Judah doesn't really intend on giving uh, Tamar, his third son. And so what happens next is extremely disturbing. Tamar's figured it out by this point. She knows. I'm not going to get a husband from Judah's family. And we're reminded of Judah's friend, Harah. It seems like anytime time uh, Harah's around, Judah makes bad choices. He makes bad decisions. Right, they go up to Timnah, where his sheep are. And somehow Tamar finds out about this. She's, she's probably figured out Judah, lied to her. And so she dresses like a prostitute, covers her face, and waits by a pagan temple. You might think, isn't this a huge gamble? How does Tamar know Judah will even see her? Or if he does, will want to sleep with her? Well, Tamar knows exactly what kind of man Judah is. She knows his character. There are people in our lives that know us deeply. And they know us, not just what our reputation might be, but know us deeply. And you can understand Tamar's desperation. You can empathize with her. Maybe you've not been able to have children. Maybe you've had to wait to have children. Maybe you've been used by other people. You can identify and empathize with Tamar here. You can understand why she does this. And without knowing who she was, look down at verse 16. He, being Judah, went over to her and said, come let me sleep with you. Tamar set her trap now. ironic, Judah is deceived. Like he deceived his father. And his father deceived his father. It just keeps happening. But her her plan, her trap, is going to get tighter around him. She said, will you give me, what will you give me for sleeping with me? So Tamar begins to negotiate with Judah. In verses 17 through 20, Judah, uh, they begin to bargain. She wants a down payment. She doesn't just want his word. She knows how good his word is, right? So she deceives him again, getting him him to agree to leave Uh, With her, his signet ring, very specialized, his staff, very personalized, and his cord. He basically left her his license and social security card. I mean, very seriously. Like, if you wanted to identify Judah, you've got everything you need to identify him. And she deceives him. And she has sex with him, and she becomes pregnant, from what the text tells us. Church family, as this story has slowed down, Moses wants, to, wants us to deal with the brokenness and the sin here. Judah commits sexual immorality. And what's interesting is that this sexual sin is all tied up to pagan cult practices. Remember, he goes to this temple. The great-grandchildren of Abraham will still struggle to forsake their past. They will struggle to forsake their idols. And we, too struggle to leave our past sins we too struggle to leave our past sins we can identify with judah verse 21 judah sent the young goat by his friend the adulamite in order to get back the items that he had left with the woman he could not find her so judah sends his canaanite friend you know what he's used to this i'm gonna send him so everything's fine no one's gonna see me over there He's just concerned about his appearance. He's not convicted by his sin. He's, not, he's only concerned about his reputation. See what sin does to us? As it builds, it's, it's like corrosion on a battery. It just, it just gets thicker and thicker and thicker until the battery won't work anymore. And that's what sin does to our hearts. We indulge a little bit we, we take a step back. We indulge a little bit and we just, we keep getting closer and closer and closer to sin and it, it just erodes a conscience or any kind of conviction that the Holy Spirit would give. Verse 21, he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was beside the road to Enum? I can't find her. And so his friend returns home. And he shares the bad news. Verse 23, Judah replied, Let's keep the, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. Again, he's concerned about his appearance. Not the effects of sin. We've seen how shocking wickedness of sin can be. and how it's difficult to forsake our sinful past. But sin will continue to erode our hearts. Now, look at Judah's next sin, his fourth sin. It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Judah's sin will continue to build up and it's going to culminate in this hypocrisy. Now, we fast forward three months. Look at verse 24. Judah was told, Your daughter in law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Tamar is unable to conceive are unable to conceal that she is pregnant and the family begins to talk and word gets back to Judah. What's his response? Bring her out here and let's burn her to death. The same callousness that Judah had against Joseph he has against Tamar. We see his hypocrisy, right? Tamar is held to a different standard than he is. right? She's going to die for her sexual immorality, but he'll be safe. He'll be just fine. Hypocrisy, church, let me be very clear. Hypocrisy isn't that you are a Christian and you sin just like a non-Christian. Hypocrisy is that you sin and call for their judgment and not your own. That's what hypocrisy is. You're never going to be perfect. You're never going to live up to God's standard, without, especially without Christ. but Even in Christ, until he returns, we're going to sin. Hypocrisy is when you call out the sins of others and aren't willing to confess and repent of your own sin. And Judah totally misses this. Totally misses it. Now, in the Old Testament, there are commands for what should happen to someone who commits adultery. They should be stoned. But burning is much worse. Much worse. In verse 25, 25, look at it. As she's being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. Although Tamar is being led to her death, it's right where she wants to be. Look. I am pregnant by the man whose these items belong. And she added, examine them. Judah, go ahead and look at them. Go ahead and look at them. He knows who they are. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? And Judah knows. He knows whose they are. There is nowhere for Judah to go. The public burning of Tamar has now turned into a public trial against Judah. He will now be found out. Church, understand that sin will be found out. And and although that's extremely scary, it it should motivate us to understand that there's nothing we can do to hide it. Nothing we can do to hide it. It will be found out. And if we're really honest, we look at this and we're like, what a horrible story. Again, you might ask, why is the story here? There's a few reasons. I want to highlight, though, that last week we learned that God can continue his plan of restoration despite the evil and wickedness in the world. But this morning, this chapter declares to us that God can work out his plan despite sin and wickedness inside of his own people. That's what God can do. God doesn't leave us in our sin. He offers a way out through repentance and when we trust in His promises. We absolutely see shocking sin here. It should shock you. It's strange. It's uncomfortable. But more than that, we see the power of shocking grace. We see the power of God's shocking grace. God's grace is about offering you things that you don't deserve. Even here in this story, we get a glimpse of God's grace. Let me show you what I'm talking about. The only only thing that we can hold on to is God's grace. So what does God's grace offer in this story? And what does it offer to us? It offers transformation. There's an offer of transformation. Look down there at verse 26. Judah recognized them and said, She is more right than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her intimately again. So when Judah's sin is brought out in the open, there's nowhere else that he can go. Of course, he could have refused it. He could have said she's a liar. He could have said she stole him and burned her anyways. Instead, he repents and exonerates her. I think this is sort of the start of Judah's transformation. Maybe even his conversion, some might say. From this point forward, we will see Judah. We will see him not be self-seeking, not greedy. He will actually lay down his life for his brother, Benjamin. Judah will seek his good and not his own. Judah, with all of his faults, will point us to Jesus and who will lay down his life for us, his brothers and sisters, And so Judah, now we begin to see this thread, this beautiful thread of Judah begins to change. In this moment, he begins to realize where he's been. There's hope for us. There's hope for you that there is redemption, that you can actually change. You can be different. God chooses to love sinners and he chooses to change sinners. Sinners. God does this through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That God would send his son into the world to put on flesh, to live a perfect life, to be betrayed, handed over, sold, and then to be hung on a cross. And the Bible says that we're looking through 1 John in our equip hour and we're seeing how beautiful this uh, this. Gospel is that he is our propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice. That when Jesus stood up there, was hung on the cross, he bore our sin. And God's wrath was poured out on him. That's the gospel message that offers us this transformation. That is God's promise that he offers to us. And so through Jesus, we now can receive his righteousness, as the Apostle Paul writes. That we can experience true and lasting transformation. We can be redeemed. It's very faint. But in Judah, we will start to see a different brother. And in Christ, we now can be different brothers and sisters because of God's grace through him. And so we see the offer of transformation, but we also see the offer of participation and restoration the offer of participation and restoration over the the last two weeks we've seen a very destructive judah right he sold his brother and now he's moved away from his family married a canaanite woman he's lied committed adultery there there isn't much evil left for judah to do but god doesn't turn his back on judah Because of his promise to his great-grandfather Abraham, God offers grace to Judah, and we learn about God's grace. Right To understand, look down there at verse 27. Moses writes, When the time came for her as Tamar to give birth, there were twins in her womb. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and wrapped and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, This one came out first. But then he pulled back, out came the other brother, and she said, what a breakout you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out, and he was named Zerah. You might think, what an odd ending to a horrific story in the book of Genesis. But look at God's grace to Judah. It's God's grace to Tamar. Number one, Tamar gets a child. She gives birth to children, two sons. And number two, Judah is going to get a son to carry on the family name, to carry on the promise of God. God works despite horrific sin, even our horrific sin. He keeps his promise to Abraham. And this promise will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Remember, as Andrew read the genealogy of Jesus, the first thing you should know is that in the line of Jesus, we see Judah. We see Tamar, only one of a handful of women named in the whole genealogy. And we see Perez. Out of horrific sins, the Savior of the world will be born into this family. Jesus has sinners in in his family tree. Jesus has very wicked, formerly wicked, sinners in his family tree. Church, understand that despite your brokenness, God is still willing to use you. He's still willing to use you. God wants to use sinners, both Judah and Tamar. Think of Judah. Maybe you're stuck in your sin. Maybe you feel, I can't get out of this. I keep falling back. I want to, I want to fight sin. I want to be free of this. Feeling like you can't beat it. And you can't on your own. You need the grace of God through the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. But in that, God can use you when you repent and trust in his promises. Don't let guilt and shame keep you from God's offer. Because that's exactly what the enemy wants for you, is for you to, be, to beat yourself down. But God uses Judah to bring forward the Messiah. And, and even with Tamar. Maybe you've been used. Maybe you feel like nobody wants you. Maybe you feel broken and hollow inside because of what has happened to you. But God wants to use you. God cares for you. He loves you. He has a plan for you and will forgive you and trust you even in your own faults, even in your sin. You see, God can still use you despite the sins you've committed or the sins that have been committed against you. And this is the story of the gospel. That all of us in this room have sinned horribly against God and other people. But yes, we've also experienced sin. We've also been hurt. God can use us. He can use you. And so church, I want you to see how beautiful this is. That in God's offer of participation and restoration, God keeps his promise. God keeps his promise no matter what. That he will bring a seed that is Jesus Christ who will crush the head of the serpent. It is in God's kindness that he's willing to use Judah and Tamar. Despite the serious sin that took place throughout this chapter, he was willing to use them when they repented and trusted in his promises. God is always going to keep those promises. The question for us is will we repent? And trust in those promises. Let's go and pray to the Lord together. God in heaven, uh, what a difficult story. Maybe uncomfortable. But we know that it's for our good. We know that you have it here for us to, to deal with and to work through. So God, I pray that you would, you would help us repent of our sins. I pray that we would confess that to you, confess that to a brother or sister. I pray that you would help us trust in your promises, that we would hold tightly to them. God, I pray that for those in the room who feel like they're worthless and that there's no way you can use them, that you want to. Will you help us love them and speak the truth of the gospel to them? God, there are people in this room that feel used, like Tamar was, who feel broken and, and maybe even some sort of dirty. God, I just pray that you would come alongside of them and comfort them. Let us as your church family love on them and strengthen them to show them the beauty of the gospel, That there is forgiveness for our own sins, but also a release from bitterness and anger and hurt. And so God, would this story help us be the kind of church that both calls out sin immediately, repents from it. And we also care for those who have been hurt deeply by grievous sin. God, would you make this church family a welcoming, warm, but firm family. God, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.